Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If you're doing legislative oversight of the executive branch and you're having your strings pulled by the subject of that investigation in the executive branch, that's not real legislative oversight. And at its worst, it might actually be obstruction of justice. That's Sheldon Whitehouse. He's a U.S. senator from Rhode Island. He used to be the attorney general of that state and once upon a time, the United States attorney. And right now, he's serving on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which, as you might imagine, is pretty important, especially these days. We're talking to Senator Whitehouse this week because there's so much happening in Washington right now between the Nunes memo, the Russia investigation, another possible shutdown. We figured it was time to speak with a lawmaker, and specifically a Democrat, to see what the opposition party strategy might be during this wild time in Washington. But first, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. My name is Rob from Denver, and I have a kind of a question about a, a, a fundamental aspect of the Nunez memo that I just don't understand. If you and I are neighbors and you hate my guts and my wife disappears and you call the police and you give them an anonymous tip that uh, I might have had something to do with my wife's disappearance, and then the police decide to launch an investigation into me because of that tip, you haven't violated my Fourth Amendment rights. That's literally how many investigations in this country start. So I'm not entirely sure why it even matters that uh, a political opponent may have unearthed some evidence that would have led to uh, the authorization of a surveillance tap. So I'm wondering if you could help explain that a little bit more. Thank you. Uh, Rob, that's a, that's a great question, provocatively put. And I think you've actually managed to hit on something, and that is that every day law enforcement around the country to do its job and keep people safe and hold people accountable has to rely on, at least initially in the investigative phase, on people who have some bias. Sometimes it's a person who's part of a cartel. Sometimes it's someone who's in a gang. Sometimes it's someone who's unsavory in some way. And sometimes it's someone like you described who has a bias against a neighbor. That doesn't mean the crime wasn't committed. It doesn't mean that the person who may have engaged in a murder or a kidnapping or some other crime gets to get out of jail free card. It's not how it works. 
The distinction, though, between the scenario that you described about the mere launching of an investigation, that doesn't implicate anyone's rights in any way under the Constitution. If you're just going to go around and sort of ask questions, maybe do some surveillance, the distinction that is embroiling people in controversy on the Nunes memo is that the Fourth Amendment is squarely on point because not only did they start an investigation, presumably, or continue an investigation based on this dossier that may have had you know a biased party paying for it, but they asked a court to do a very invasive thing, and that is to wiretap a phone under FISA. And in that circumstance, what the Fourth Amendment requires generally is that the search be reasonable. You know, some investigative techniques don't implicate the Fourth Amendment. And so there are various ways you can investigate the disappearance of the wife in your scenario. But then other investigative techniques, including, you know, getting a search warrant for someone's home or eavesdropping on their phone calls and electronic communications, it has to be reasonable. And then the question is, and I don't think it would prevail in this case, given what we know more fully about the Nunes memo, whether it was reasonable for the government to seek and the court to allow in the circumstances presented, that eavesdropping. And as a general matter, if in the hypothetical, if the only information you have to present to the court is from someone who is biased in a documented, demonstrable way, you want to tell the court. And there will be some debate about whether or not you know more was said or less was said, but it seems like the court was advised, based on reporting that I've seen, that there was bias, political bias, on the part of people who were paying for that dossier. But at the end of the day, the question is whether or not the court felt deceived and whether or not the court, even if they had fuller information, would have allowed the eavesdropping anyway. And my sense, not knowing all the details in this case, is that they would have. So there shouldn't be a legal issue. Hi, Preet. This is Carlos from Miami. A uh, quick question. Do we undermine the seriousness of the president's statements by constantly referring to them as tweets instead of statements made via Twitter? Thanks again. I'll stay tuned. Carlos, thanks for your question. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I don't know how much difference there is be, between saying something as a tweet versus a statement via Twitter. I think there are some people who draw that distinction. I've said many times that the kinds of things that the president says at the drop of a hat and off the cuff when he's clearly typing out the tweets himself are more instructive about his state of mind, what he's thinking, whether it's with regard to his intense feelings about the Russian investigation or anything else, than a formal statement that would be put out under his name by a press secretary or by some other representative. Those things get you know, vetted and edited and looked at by a lot of people, and it's not clear that they come straight out of the mouth of Donald Trump. The most compelling thing in connection with an investigation of any kind is the words that come directly out of the mouth of the person whose mind you're trying to understand. And if you're trying to understand the mind of Donald Trump, often the best way is to read and interpret the tweets he sends. You know, as to your question directly, do we undermine the seriousness? Yeah, I guess maybe that's what is intended, that there's something more casual and less consequential about what a president says on Twitter. But I think as a legal matter, we'll discover maybe fairly shortly that there is not such a distinction. You know, obviously, tweeting is not under oath and is not under penalty of perjury and is not a crime if there's a false statement in it. So there is a higher order, more you know, rigorous setting in which a statement means a lot more 
than either a tweet or from the podium or from an official statement put out by his press office. But barring that, a statement from the president is a statement of the president. And the more you can rely on the idea that it came directly out of the president's mind and reflects what he's thinking, the more serious it is. Preet, this is Ali Rahmatullah from Greenwich, Connecticut. What do you do in the case where a witness fails to recall the answer to your question? So I'm thinking in particular here of some testimony that I heard of Jeff Sessions, uh, but I suspect it's very common. So as, as a prosecutor, how do you handle that? What are the strategies, tactics to handle that when you suspect there's uh, selective amnesia going on here? Thank you. That's a great question. Selective amnesia is, is a very serious hazard of the law enforcement profession. People don't want to get in trouble. People want to shade the truth. People don't want to incriminate themselves. They often don't want to incriminate other people. So the best way often of dealing with that is to utter you know, that talismanic statement, which is, I don't recall. I think I once said on the podcast about a, a case that I was working on involving the Senate investigation, and we had a witness who testified for hours and hours and hours. And then we had a second session. And at the beginning of that second session, the lawyer said, well, I want to make one correction from the first session we had. And even though his client at the first session had repeatedly said, I don't recall in response to questions I had asked, the lawyer wanted to make one correction. And he pointed me to the transcript from the prior session at some page, you know, 185 on line 24, where my client said, no, that was supposed to be, I don't recall. So you've hit the nail on the head. You know, people want to have selective amnesia because they appreciate that it is harder to say someone is lying when they say, I don't recall, as opposed to saying, you know, no or yes or flatly answering the question. So look, the strategies you use are the same that you use in any kind of Q&A session. You can be incredulous about their failure to recall. You can point to all the other things that they do recall. You can, you know, show to an impartial jury at some point, if you decide to go forward with a false statement charge in any event, how absurd it could be that it defies all logic and reason and you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt based on surrounding circumstances that this person clearly did know you could find it from other statements that person has made showing that they had knowledge and, and remembrance of the issue. Uh, but it is much harder when someone says, I don't recall. There have been a few cases, I think I must have had a couple, where you brought it, where we brought a case against someone for the false statement of I don't recall, but it is a much, much harder uphill battle. My guest this week is Sheldon Whitehouse, senator from Rhode Island, and a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. We're going to talk about, oh, I don't know, everything. There's a lot going on. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you so much for being on the program. Preet Bharara, great to be on your program. So we are, we are recording, actually. In Washington, D.C. We are. On the sixth floor of the Hart Senate Office Building. And it's caused me to become a little bit nostalgic. I used to work in this building a few floors down. Where we first met. We did. You were not... staffing then ordinary mortal Senator Chuck Schumer, <laughs> who is now, now, now the leader. The leader. Do you the call him leader? leader? Do you call him Leader Schumer? He likes to be called Dear Leader, actually. Right. Is he going to plan a military parade also? <laughs> I think that's a little bit more 
uh, Soviet than his tastes. More executive. Right? It's an executive branch prerogative. <laughs> In the Senate, you don't really do that. But, so I wanted to say on a, on a personal note, not to overflatter you. Oh, but, go ahead. But when, when I, so I was a staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee several years ago. And I remember the new class of uh, senators got elected in 2006. And as a general matter, senators and staffers don't speak to each other. They barely look at each other. They don't know who, they don't know the names of the staffers unless it's, you know, you're working for them. But there were a few senators who actually knew my name. And they were all freshmen who came in the class of 2006 and so started serving in 2007. And they were Claire McCaskill, Amy Klobuchar, and Sheldon Whitehouse. And you know what? It's a nice thing when a senator who's elected statewide from their state knows the name of a staff. So I just want you to know that you know, I appreciate it and we appreciate it. Plus, just, that, was a, uh, that was a good, boisterous class. We were all kind of <laughs> underdogs when we got started. And um, I think it's shown up pretty well over time that we've, we were a good class. And you're all running for president now, right? Some are, but God knows who. But you I'm are not. not but you are them. not. I am not one so of them. explain this to me. You're kind of hurting the expectations of your forebears who gave you the name White House. Yeah, I know. And you don't want to live there. I know. Be such an easy slogan. <laughs> <laughs> so I, to just continue with the nostalgia tour, one of the reasons that we got to know each other when I was a staffer was in 2007, there was an investigation done by the Senate Judiciary Committee on a bipartisan basis of, guess what, the Justice Department and the ways in which it was politicized. And you were actively involved in that. You were a former United States attorney, former attorney general. And I remember documents would come in and the staffers would go into a conference room and while the, we presume the senators would go out and raise funds and have parties or whatever it is that senators thought that they were doing. And you would show up and start looking through the documents yourself. It's the lawyer in me. It took a while for you to, I don't know, have you, have you now become so elevated that you let other people do the work or do you still do some of the work yourself? I still do a fair amount. And how does that work for you? Pretty well. Yeah. Pretty well. I think there's a uh, feeling among staff that senators are better if they're told what to do by their staff. But I think that's not always true. How do you know? And for the listener, <laughs> there are various, you have like 20 or 30 staff members present in this small podcast studio. No offense to them. How do you know that they're serving your interests? How does a senator know if their staffers are representing them in the way that you want to be represented? You know, that's actually an interesting question. Early on, somebody said, you know what the great fights are here in Washington. One is obviously Republican versus Democrat, and we're certainly seeing plenty of that. The other is executive versus legislative. That's the fight that the founding fathers set up. Uh, the third is the House versus the Senate. And there's the old story, the House member calling the other party the enemy and the older House member coming up to him and saying, don't confuse things. They're just our adversaries. The enemy is the Senate. <laughs> and the fourth one is member versus staff. And I can't tell you how often I've reached agreements on the floor with a Republican senator only to have their staff tear it down afterwards. Oh, no, you can't do that, Senator. So it's a little bit like the Trump White House. So there's Steve, Stephen Miller's running around everywhere. <laughs> there's the Stephen they Miller's make a everywhere. deal. And then, and then the staff. But that's actually it's a real thing. It happens. It's a real thing. It happens. So that investigation, look, it, it was a formative experience for me and something that you worked on when you came into the Senate. But you remember how it ended. It ended with the inspector general at the Department of Justice needing documents that the White House had and asking the White House for the documents and the White House saying, no, we're not going to cooperate. We're not going to give you the documents. And Attorney General Mukasey meekly yielding and not insisting on the White House producing the documents. 
But a lot of other things happened along the way. A lot of other things happened along the way. A lot that of was people, a very unfortunate yeah. ending to that. Well, I want to compare what happened then to what's happening now. And one of the things that was happening then was it was, you know, my recollection is it was very bipartisan. You know, Senator Schumer and Senator Leahy on the Democratic side and Senator Specter on the Republican side. And I was one of the lead staffers and did a lot of the, the interviews of various people at the Justice Department about why they fired these U.S. attorneys and why they had sort of political litmus tests for people who were coming into the department, which is anathema to, I think, the interests of justice. But in every one of those things, the minority staff and the majority staff worked on them jointly, agreed on who the witnesses should be, agreed on whether or not subpoenas should be issued, and made joint recommendations to the, to the chair and to the ranking member. And I think it gave the investigation credibility. And people understood that it was, it was not about politics, although, you know, some partisanship entered into it. But it was by and large, you know, a serious engagement into an inquiry about what was happening at the Justice Department. Because I do agree that oversight is an important part of your job as a senator, and I know you agree with that. How do you compare that to what's happening now with the intelligence committees and the judiciary committees with respect to the Russia investigation and the Mueller investigation, the level of bipartisanship? It's a world apart. It's a world apart. I think that the firing of the U.S. attorneys for political purposes was a scandal that was only likely to go so far particularly if the Department of Justice was going to yield to a White House that said, no, you can't see our documents. But I think even without that, it was probably only going to go so far. Maybe Karl Rove's would have had to roll if he was caught manipulating or something like that. But that was kind of the limit of it. Uh, in this case, the Russia investigation goes straight at the president, his family, and his political circle. So they're much more anxious than the Bush White House was about the U.S. attorney investigation. I think that the biggest unanswered question that is floating around out there about this investigation is what was the White House role in the House Intelligence Committee Republican report? You're talking about what's referred to as the Nunes memo. The Nunes memo. What was the White House role? And over and over again, when Nunes gets asked that question, he either ducks it or drops into carefully scripted lawyerly statements that say things like, well, the White House didn't draft any part of the report. If you're doing legislative oversight of the executive branch and you're having your strings pulled by the subject of that investigation in the executive branch, that's not real legislative oversight. And at its worst, it might actually be obstruction of justice. You think, and by the way, just to clarify, what we're talking about is the three and a half page memo that was put out by the majority of the House Intelligence Committee relating to a FISA application involving Carter Page. Correct. In connection with the Russia investigation. Correct. And there is pending, at the time of this recording at least, yes. on Wednesday afternoon, the release of the Democratic version of events in a lengthier memo that's going to be put out, I guess, by Representative Adam Schiff. So you're saying that Devin Nunes is potentially involved in obstruction of justice as a legal matter? There is an unanswered question as to what the role has been of the White House or of the Trump legal team in that Nunes memo's preparation, in the plan to put it together, in all of it. 
if there were no role, if this was pure legislative oversight that was being done on the up and up, it's an incredibly easy answer to give. It's not only no, but hell no. We would never do that. That's a ridiculous end of story. Instead, you get these carefully parsed dodgem answers that suggest that maybe there is something there. And I think we're entitled to know what that something was. And if it has, in fact, gotten to the point where this actually was a scripted exercise designed to impede Bob Mueller's investigation by facilitating a broad attack on the FBI and on certain witnesses who might be brought into the grand jury, now you really are getting into obstruction of justice territory. These should be really easy questions to answer. And the absence of a clear answer is telling. Who do you think is most likely at the White House to have been involved in coordinating, I won't use the other C word, yep. colluding with yep. Devin Nunes and the House Intelligence Committee in putting out this memo? I could not hypothesize. It could be you know, virtually anyone. I would hope that the lawyers who are advising Trump as his personal lawyers would know better than to be involved in any such thing and, in fact, would blow the whistle if they found out about it. Right. So if the White House counsel Don McGahn is involved, that's one thing. But if Ty Cobb, who's playing a central role in representing the president in connection with the Mueller investigation, was involved in the Nunes memo, you think that's a terrible thing? It would be a terrible thing if either of them were involved. I think that both of them are good enough lawyers and experienced enough people that, in my judgment, they would be very unlikely to be involved. If I had to make a wild guess, it would be that it was some overenthusiastic 32-year-old person who thought they were being a real genius and um, that if McGon or Cobb found out about that, they'd go ballistic. But again, those ought to be easy questions to answer and we haven't gotten those answers. Should the Nunes memo have been released? No. It should not have. Why? Well, for a variety of reasons. First of all, it created a false narrative. Worse than just creating a false narrative because you can ultimately correct a false narrative, is the fact that around the world, intelligence services, upon whom we rely for extraordinarily sensitive intelligence information, are now looking at an unprecedented process in which one party, on a purely partisan basis, has extracted classified material to put it before the public as part of a partisan mud fight. Now, you can cure the inaccuracy of that false narrative by bringing out additional classified information that corrects the record. But bringing out that additional classified information only makes the concern worse that classified information potentially shared with the United States by other countries and their intelligence services is now something that's going to be extracted and thrown in front of the public in a partisan mud fight. So should the Democrats stand down and not make matters worse? and let the Nunes memo, which has been much criticized by myself and others, no. fall of its own weight? No, I, I, I think that you've got to respond. Because if you don't, what you then have is the strategy of selective declassification to create a false narrative succeeding. And that's only an encouragement to do more and more and more and more of it. You're a United States attorney, attorney general, now a senator for a long time. And Devin Nunes has said things like Carter Page should never have been looked at at all by the FBI. Based on what information is publicly available, do you have a view on that? 
I've got to be a little bit careful because yep. I'm one of the few senators who have been given access to the underlying material. Meaning, and, meaning the affidavit in support of the FISA application. And related documents, right. yes. And, you, whole, and you've the, gone the to read them? And I've gone to read them. You didn't send Trey Gowdy? <laughs> I did not send Trey Gowdy. I actually uh, went through them. And so I've got to be careful because some of that is yep. still classified. But the conclusion that I've reached is that there was abundant evidence outside of the Steele dossier right. that would have provoked any responsible FBI with a counterintelligence concern to look at whether Carter Page was an undisclosed foreign agent. And to this day, the FBI continues to assert that he was a undisclosed Russian foreign agent. So you're junior still, so you're not the chairman of a committee or a ranking member of a committee, right? I'm the ranking member of a crime and terror subcommittee. That's where Lindsay and I had a number of, a lot of fun. very good hearings on this. <laughs> right. But I'm, I'm going to a different point, which is even though you're not the, the ranking member of a committee and even though you have not put out a memo in your capacity as the chairman or ranking member of a committee, you went and read the underlying documents. Yes, in my capacity as the ranking member on the Crime and Terrorism Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, I was given access to those documents. And you thought it was a responsible thing to, to look at them? I thought it was a responsible thing to look at them. What do you think about the fact that Representative Nunes, who is making a lot of hay about all this information, claiming that the affidavit was filed under false pretenses and the FISA court was misled, that he himself has not looked at that material? Well, that is not a... Uh fact that adds much to his credibility. And to the extent that this was staff-driven, the potential that there was White House interference or coordination in all of that actually goes up a bit because you could have the overenthusiastic young staffer at the White House now being matched by over-enthusiastic staffers on the House Permanent Subcommittee on Intelligence, and they cook up this cockamamie scheme. And if their supervising representative, the chairman of the committee, has not gone and read the actual documents, uh, the danger of being led astray goes up. And again, I don't think it's very plausible that Don McGahn or that Ty Cobb had a role in this. They're too experienced and they're too good of a lawyer to do this. And frankly, if they saw it coming, they'd be nuts not to blow the whistle on it. But that does not mean there aren't folks over there who, for some reason or other, think this is a really clever idea. Have you seen the Schiff memo? No. Do you think there's a possibility that the president will not allow it to be released? Distinct possibility. And, and what do you think will happen if the president, notwithstanding wanting to release the Republican memo, and even though the Intel Committee voted unanimously to release the Democratic memo, the president says, no, no way. What will happen? I think there will be a storm of controversy. You mean another storm of controversy? Another storm of controversy, an S storm of controversy. And I think that at that point, under the House rules, the question then goes to the full body of the House of Representatives whether to go ahead and make the disclosure notwithstanding the opinion of the president. And when you take a look at the vote 
in the Intelligence Committee to release the report, which we're told was unanimous, it's really hard to imagine that the Republicans would not vote to release the report. So a fine mess, Ollie, as they used to say, (laughs) but I think ultimately the report does come out. And I think facing the prospect that ultimately the report must come out, the cooler heads at the White House will say to the president, there is no reason to black your own eye taking this punch to no effect because it's all going to come out anyway. Feign magnanimity, feign a lack of concern about this, let it come out and move on. That would be the sensible advice for him to receive. Do you think Representative Nunes should continue to be the chair of the Intel Committee? Well, that's going to be the call of the members of the committee. Uh, I have not seen how damaging the Schiff counter report is, but there's every reason to believe that reasonable minds could believe that he has damaged himself enough that he should no longer have a role uh, in this investigation. But I'd be prejudging to make that conclusion now until the Schiff report is public. What happens if the president of the United States fires either uh, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, or causes the firing of Bob Mueller? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about it and a lot of, you know, people on cable television saying, you know, constitutional crisis, people will take to this. But what what do you think will really happen? And then the second question is, what will you personally do as senator if that happens? Well, a lot depends on what the president chooses to do. It's not all that easy to get to Bob Mueller. One way is that you ask Jeff Sessions to step down. You get a new attorney general in place. And then the conflict that created Sessions' recusal, you deem to have evaporated. And now you don't need special counsel. This can just be run by the Department of Justice in the ordinary course. That requires you to get through advice and consent on your new attorney general, which is not an easy thing. You can order Sessions to fire Rosenstein or try to fire him directly and then wait and see what consequences that has. And then you've got to fire your way down to somebody who will fire Mueller. So if he does it that way, then what? Well, then it's a slow process of going through the firings until you get to that person. The first one up is Rachel Brand. Maybe she holds and now you've got to fire her and then who else comes up next? You could actually end up in a situation which you go quite far down to the department and nobody is willing to fire Bob Mueller. And now you've really destroyed your presidency to no gain. Plus, the firing begins to look like an element of your obstruction of justice charge. Just because the president is doing something in his official capacity that he is allowed to do doesn't mean it's not obstruction of justice. I can tell you something I don't fully understand from where I sit on the outside, and that is Rod Rosenstein seems to have a lot of support among folks as a person who served both a Democratic yeah. and Republican Career guy, solid reputation, been but a U.S. attorney. But on the issue of recusal, which has been an issue we've been talking about with Jeff Sessions and other people over the last number of months, it appears that if Special Counsel Mueller is looking at obstruction, and one of the things that they're looking at is the way in which Jim Comey, former FBI director, was fired. And we also know that Rod Rosenstein had a role in drafting at least the initial memo, which one could argue was, I think it was, pretextual as to why Jim Comey was fired, having to do with how he handled the Hillary Clinton email investigation, that he must be a witness, but no one is clamoring for him to recuse himself. My theory being, 
will Democrats trust him to maintain Bob Mueller in place more than any successor? Do you have a view on whether or not he can actually continue in his role, given that he's a witness in the investigation? You know, if that has been worked through to Mueller's satisfaction, and I have every reason to believe that it has, then I don't see any reason to second guess what Bob Mueller and his investigators feel about their comfort level there. I don't agree that the Rosenstein memo was necessarily pretextual. I think that Comey was way out of line in a couple of things. First, you and I both know that it is a cardinal rule of the Department of Justice that you do not disclose derogatory investigative information about an uncharged person. And even if you charge a person, you do not reveal derogatory investigative information about that person except through the proper course of law. You put it in the indictment. Right. You put it into motions or affidavits. Right. You don't you, go outside the four corners of the case. You don't go outside the, the four right. corners of the case. So, so that's all true. He did that, which was unacceptable. We, I mean, you've been a U.S. attorney. The idea right. that the FBI goes rogue and doesn't check in with the department, if that were to propagate itself through all the SACs around the yeah. SACs around the country, that if would the special, be— we, talk, we had this conversation in my office, and I was, I was the United States attorney at the time. We said, what if the special agent in charge— of the FBI at the time went out to cameras and announced what their view was on a case that was our decision to make, whether it was the mayor or another high-profile case. Your head would have exploded. Three times. Yeah. It would have exploded three times. I agree with all of that. I'm not saying that what view was expressed in the Rosenstein memo about the conduct of Jim Comey was nuts. What I'm saying is the idea that that actually was a reason why the president was hot to fire Jim Comey does seem to be nuts. Could be. I want to go back to something we talked about when you came into the Senate and we did these investigations and basically the entire top leadership of the Justice Department left in connection with some of the things we had been looking at. And President Bush needed a new attorney general. And he nominated someone who I know very well, was the chief judge in my district. I took trial practice with him. He and I don't share views on a lot of things. Michael B. Mukasey. And Michael B. Mukasey was cruising towards a very easy confirmation and it was a two-day confirmation hearing that took place, I think, in Hart 216, yep. uh, where a lot of the big confirmation hearings happen. I remember it to this day. And I was sitting in the room, and it's very rare that you have you know, a jolting moment in a Senate hearing. It happens from time to time. And I remember sitting there, probably on my BlackBerry, responding to you know, various things that Senator Schumer wanted me to be doing. And you asked a question. And I had never been, I was four and a half years here, and I've never been in a hearing that was as jarring a moment in a sort of a you know, change the tenor of the whole place. I mean, the air went out of the room. And you asked the nominee to be the Attorney General of the United States, way back then, I think it was 2007, if he believed that waterboarding was torture. And he wouldn't answer your question. Yeah. Why did you ask the question, and why were you so upset at the non-answer? I asked the question because one of the problems in the Department of Justice had been what I consider to be the failure of the Office of Legal Counsel to do its job honorably and responsibly. As you and I both know, the Office of Legal Counsel is sort of the high priests and priestesses of the department. It's the best. It's the brightest. It's the one who were Supreme Court clerks. It's the one who so go on to be Supreme Court and Circuit Court judges. It is a big deal 
to be in the Office of Legal Counsel. And when the time came for the Office of Legal Counsel to opine on whether or not the waterboarding program, the torture program, was legal or not, they cooked the memos. It's rare for the Office of Legal Counsel ever to withdraw a memo. They've been withdrawn. I was one of the first people to actually get access to those memos and to read them. And I'd done a little bit of research. There was a decision out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, one down below the Supreme Court, upholding the conviction, the criminal conviction for violating civil rights of prisoners of a Texas sheriff who waterboarded those prisoners. It was called water torture repeatedly in the district court decision and in the circuit court decision. It was a case that was brought by the Department of Justice. They had that case in their files, even if they couldn't find it by searching the circuit court of appeals decisions for words like water and torture. And in their lengthy opinion, they never mentioned that decision. Any lawyer knows that if you're going before a judge, you have an obligation to raise and if you wish, try to distinguish away the precedent that is against you. It's one of the worst things a lawyer can do to go into court and basically try to fool the court by not bringing up relevant precedent that doesn't go your way. So this wasn't just the hypothetical question of whether waterboarding is torture or not. That, I think, is an easy answer. When Mukasey was unable to answer that question, that signaled to me that he was not going to be firm about cleaning up that problem at OLC. We seem to have gotten sort of past this issue of waterboarding and torture in the years since then, since that hearing. Are you worried? Obviousness has a way of <laughs> asserting itself over time. Well, you know, there's rhetoric these days about, again, Guantanamo Bay and how people should be treated in harsh interrogation techniques. And the current president, when he was a candidate, talked about these things in the kind of way that you would not have liked had the attorney general done so in 2007. Do you see a return to that kind of method? I think that um, there's a certain amount of rhetoric around this. I think once you go to Secretary Mattis and once you go to uh, Director Pompeo and once they consider how we expect, say, a downed American pilot to be treated when he or she is captured, the idea that we green light that kind of abuse will come back to haunt our own men and women in uniform and the men and women of our intelligence services. And I think the military and the intelligence services are keenly aware of that and will be a check on that. We also know that it doesn't damn work. And that's really the bottom line. Your crack staff is making eyes at me to wrap up because you have a lot of things you got to do. So let me just end with asking you, do you think that the Democrats will take back the House this fall? I do. And if the Democrats take back the House based on information that's already out there and based on what you think will be uncovered and what will be disclosed and what Bob Mueller may do, do you think there will be a credible effort to impeach Donald Trump in the House? Not whether they should, but whether there yeah, will be. I don't know. It all depends on what the Mueller report looks like. There is a significant chance, just because what we know publicly is so shady, when you add in what Mike Flynn, what Papadopoulos, what Hope Hicks, what people who've been either interviewed or are cooperating may have said to Mueller, when you look at, I assume he's subpoenaed the Trump tax 
returns and has been looking at the money laundering financial side of all of this, there is a chance that when this report comes out, it's not just a summary of what we know. It is actually a knockdown blow that causes Republicans and Democrats alike to say, okay, that has to be remedied. We have to act. And until you know what that case is, I don't know. I think we should run to control the House because of the bad things that Trump has done as president, not as a mechanism of getting to impeachment. I don't think that we should be focusing on that issue. That will play out in the natural course of events. And the less of a political overtone it has, the better. I think uh, the American people are sick of what they've seen in terms of the divisiveness of this president. And there's plenty of reasons to vote for a check and balance against this Trump White House without having to go to impeachment. Who's your favorite Republican? Well, Lindsey and I did a lot together in the committee, and I am a big fan of his. But let me tell you a slightly different story, because my number one nemesis in the Senate on all things climate is a guy named Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma. He's Mm -hmm. the guy who went to the Senate floor with the snowball. I'm the person (laughs) who showed up with my iPad with the NOAA satellites to rebut him. We've gone back and forth at each other on this issue for a long, long time. But we did a bipartisan hearing on the problem of plastic all over the oceans, all the marine debris that's clogging the oceans with plastic trash. And he came into the room, and I will confess to you that my initial reaction was to want to thump my forehead on the desk in front of me and say, Jim, why did you have to come? We were having such a good hearing. (laughs) Why? You know, geez. He came in. He sat down. He listened to the hearing. He said, you know, this is important stuff. I think I'd like to get behind this bill. He told the story of going as a young man down to the Gulf Coast and staying up to protect the little turtles coming out of their shells from trucks and jeeps going up and down the beach so that they could get safely into the ocean. He became an original co-sponsor of the legislation, and that led it to be passed by unanimous consent uh, in the Senate, and it's now awaiting action in the House. So you find allies in the Senate, as you remember from your experience, in some very improbable places. Has that taught you anything about how to get bipartisan action going forward? I think the lesson is that you can disagree very vehemently with people on some issues, but you shouldn't let that vehement disagreement on those issues impede you in finding the places where you can work together and get good things done. And I think it's pretty clear that beginning to solve the problem of the plastic that is clogging our oceans with waste is a good thing to get done. No argument from me. Yeah. That's a good place to end. Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much again for being here, taking the Preet Bharara, good to be with you. This is the part of the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me. Now, from time to time on the program, I talk about how inspiring young people can be. One time I talked about the speech competition that my son went to, hearing young kids talk about world affairs and politics and the economy in ways that are more impressive than I see our elected leaders talking about them. This past weekend, uh, in fact, on another personal note, I was in Philadelphia on Sunday for a very important sports competition. And no, it wasn't the Super Bowl. It was a Rubik's Cube competition, a Rubik's Cube solving competition at the University of Pennsylvania. My younger son uh, is infatuated with the Rubik's Cube and all these mathematically smart, gifted kids from around the country uh, come together 
and they compete to solve a Rubik's Cube as fast as they can. My son's best time, 11.26 seconds, not to brag. So this week, what struck me was an article in New York Magazine whose headline was kind of jaw-dropping. The headline is, Six Teenage Boys Are Running for Governor of Kansas. Well, how the hell can that be? So it turns out one of the political controversies in the state of Kansas over the last few years has been the reduction in spending for public education. And this has a lot of young people upset. It also turns out that the state of Kansas, in its infinite wisdom, had never set a minimum age for someone to be able to run for governor, attorney general, or various other statewide offices. So one enterprising, young, activist high school student decided, what the hell? I'm going to run for governor. That's Jack Bergeson, a 16-year-old Democrat from Wichita. He formed an exploratory committee and launched his gubernatorial candidacy. Soon thereafter, it seemed like a bunch of other kids got the political bug as well, and five of his peers have done the same. Just to give you a sense of 16-year-old Bergeson's platform, this is what he said recently, quote, Allow me to clear up a misconception. I am not running for governor as a stunt or a gag. I am running for governor because of the minimum wage worker that has to work three jobs just to get by. I am running because our education system has been lagging behind other states. I am running to get money out of politics, but most importantly, I am running to get as many people involved in politics as possible. Close quote. So look, I don't know a whole lot about these kids and their platforms, and I think experience obviously is important, but so is integrity and passion and willingness to serve. I can't vote in Kansas, but I want to applaud these kids' efforts and wish them luck, because service to your community is one of the most important things you can do. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Sheldon Whitehouse, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for all the kind reviews the past few weeks. It means a lot. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky, with help this week from Courtney Harrell. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Melissa Marquise at NPR for setting us up in Washington, D.C. this week. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.